Our series is about salvation. Uh, usually I start off every series with uh, this kind of justification, like why talk about salvation? That's usually how we begin a series. Because I want you to understand why it is that we would spend God's time. So we did that last week. Actually, I gave you some ideas of why we we're going to actually do this series in our intro. I left this on the screen, though, because it seems like some of you are still wondering. I got that from the cards. So I got a lot of your cards. We're going to actually be just talking about the questions that we have about salvation tonight and starting to understand a little bit about some of how we break down salvation. So here were some of the, I would call more skeptical questions about doing this series. Can we really know how to gain salvation? Somebody asked. Here's another one. If I didn't understand all this stuff when I accepted Christ when I was four, does that make me less saved? I hope you know a little bit more now than you did when you were four, but I don't, but the question is still good. The question is still good because I think it goes to the heart of why even do a series like this? I mean, if a four-year-old can understand it, why are we going to even talk about it? How much of the conditions of salvation are man or church-made rules? Uh, somebody doesn't like the church again. <laughs> Common. Why is it so complicated, somebody else asked. Can't we just follow the teachings of Jesus and commandments and allow that to impact our lives? You know, that last question, this part right here, why is it so complicated? I spent the whole week thinking about this question, honestly. There was a part of me that wanted to come in here today and say, yeah, it's not that complicated. Because there was a part of me that thought, yeah, what are we doing? I mean, we're about to take something that is at the heart of the gospel, and we're going to actually peer into it a little bit more deeply. Isn't it as simple as what this person suggests? We just need to follow the teachings of Jesus and the commandments. Isn't that everything we need? So tonight, I want to show you some of the questions that were asked, and I want to just think about this for a moment. I will tell you that what happened on the cards was pretty remarkable. Most of the cards came down into one of two camps. Here's one of them. Can you lose your salvation? Asked repeatedly. Here are some variations of it that where you got a little bit more creative than just tell me straight up, can I lose my salvation? Can you fracture your salvation? What about the warning passages in Hebrews? Can we lose our salvation? Or is there any legitimate end of the debate between assurance, and I put in brackets security, of salvation versus losing salvation, or is it one of the mysteries of God? Are those who believe but then fell away ever saved to begin with? Are you still saved during periods of doubt? I would say the majority of people on their cards and the questions wanted to know, can I lose my salvation? Why do we have to make it so complicated? I don't know. You're the ones who are worried. That's one of the reasons. Because we seem, if it's as simple as some of you did when you gave me the formulation of what you thought it took to be saved, which was a separate exercise we did, many of you had a fairly easy formula to follow, a formulation of this is what it takes to be saved. You could fit it onto a 3 by 5 card. But then on your question card, most people's first question was, can I lose my salvation? Yes? You have to come out of worry, though. You know, like, there are so many those warning passages that are mentioned there. There's a deep, to me, there's a theological question. Like, what the heck do we do with those? You know, if you read them literally, it seems like you can't. And yet, we've seen in Ephesians and all kinds of other places where it seems like, hey, you're chosen. You're, you have the Holy Spirit. Stop worrying. So I don't think it has to come out of fear. It comes out of, what do you do with these? I'm trying to be 
having integrity when it comes to scripture. Good, Jolene. Um, I, I I agree with you, but then on the other hand, like as someone who's thought these things before, and and I'm Hispanic, and you know. We, we get, part of being Hispanic is you get guilted into everything and then you, you fear everything in life. It's like being a New Yorker. So I, I feel like, like a lot of times I've I, I thought these things like because cause we're human beings and we struggle with things and we fall off the wagon every now and then. You ask yourself, well, wait, do I have to ask for God to be in my life again? Like, do I have to do the prayer all over again? Jesus, enter my heart. Like, do we have to do that? Or were we saved to begin with and we just had to hit a rough patch and just is God forgiving of that, understanding of that, or do we have to earn it back again? You know, like, these are the thoughts that, that crossed my mind growing up. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I don't want this to sound in a self-righteous way, but you could be asking for other people to, for people that you know. Not that I would say that, like, oh, I'm so sure of my own salvation. But there is that piece of wondering that even with, Exodus, because a lot of Exodus is in response to people that have fallen away from the faith, and I feel like in there it is already a theological assumption based on why we're here. Okay, honey. Well, look, I I feel pretty secure, I guess, in, in my salvation, and like I could never imagine ever walking away from God ever, but like it's still has struck a chord in me. I think it should strike a fear chord in you, and I think there's something wrong if it doesn't, because I feel like we're never good enough, and like if we get really complacent, like I just, I don't know, I think I feel like there's something wrong with that. Okay. One thing we're going to talk about for sure at some point, because it was the number one question I was asked, is the assurance or security of salvation. The question, can you lose it? A lot of people ask that question. Here's another set of questions that all fall into the same category. Am I saved? Uh, a number of people ask, how can I be sure that I'm saved? Another one said, if you people make it to heaven, citing Luke 13, how do we know if we're saved? Is there a way you can know or confirm that you're saved? One can do all that is said to do with the eventual miss and think they believe, but how can you be sure you're saved? Or is there something that you should always feel if you are saved to confirm salvation? So here we're looking at a different type of assurance of salvation. Here's the question that people are asking like, well, is there some sign? Is there some way that I would know that I'm saved? And so putting all these questions together, they kind of fall into three major questions like, why are we making this so complicated? Like, isn't salvation just easy? Didn't I do it when I was four? But the next two seem to almost rub against that because we have a whole room full of people saying, how can I know if I'm saved? Or can I lose my salvation? It seems that the only reason I put them up is because right from the beginning, they're not that easy. It's not that easy sometimes. That's why we have been asked repeatedly, as we did so many series, to come to this topic finally and say, let's look into it. I was trying to think of a way to make that understandable to us. I'm sorry, I've been into car analogies lately. I know from the whole last series, you're probably sick of the car analogy there too. Maybe it's because I'm so good with my hands in every other way except mechanical things. They just completely baffle me. Um, you know, I could build a lot of things, but like mechanical stuff, I have no idea. Uh, and I was thinking about like this question all week. Why does it have to be so complicated? So I started thinking about getting into a car all week. It's not complicated, right? You just put the key in the engine, you start it up, and you drive, right? It's not complicated. There's nothing complicated about it until it breaks down. 
And then you're just totally standing there, just unless you're, you know, some, somebody here might be mechanical. In my car, there's actually a whole plastic plate that covers the engine that almost is like, can't touch this. You know, like just says it right from the start, like don't even look under here. You're not gonna understand this. <laughs> and they're totally right. Maybe they did that just for me. They just looked at me and go, cover it up. <laughs> don't even let them touch it. You know, this is the thing. And I, I really mean that I was struggling with this all week because at one point it sounds, and we've made it sound in the church, and it probably is very, not complicated to enter into salvation. Somebody could fairly ask, like, so do I need to understand all the things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks to have salvation? And I would say, no, emphatically, no. Just like I don't need to understand everything that's in the engine to be able to drive it. But once in a while, when you take a look in there and you see all of this, people have questions. I could tell you one way never to have a complicated relationship with salvation. You just listen to what people tell you in church and never read the scriptures. Because every single time in this room that somebody has struggled with salvation, it's been as a result of a verse that they've read that they come back and they say, wait a minute, this does not sound like the formulation of salvation that I've either been taught or that I formulated for myself or that I hear. There's a question here. It creates a question. And I say, yes. So if any of you could just assure me right now that we're not going to read scripture anymore, and we would just not do the series. I think we'd say, let's not do it at all. We don't need it. And some of you right now, I'm probably ready to do that. Anybody ready to take her on that? Like, you don't know? No? All right. You're not going to admit it out loud? Okay. <laughs> Here's another question that came up. I like this question because it shows a little bit of the complication. This person asked, what's the most basic formula for salvation? And then what is the biblical mandate for doing, being, or believing anything further? Here's the example that was given on the card. The sheep and the goats, did that person simply not believe? And that's why God never knew them? Is that really what's going on? So the question is referring to Matthew 25, where Jesus is separating people into sheep and goats and seemingly never asks about belief or faith or trust in him or anything other than what did you do? for me. Is that why some people are saved and some people are not? And that's why when we actually encounter the words of scripture and we start to look at the series, lots of people say, wait a minute. That's why I think it's worthy to spend some time on it because it's one of the things that over and over bring us to that point. And everything's great until we encounter that thing that brings us to a point where we break down. So I think it's worth talking about. Here's some of your other questions. How does Jesus' death actually take care of sin? Why does God require sacrifice for reconciliation? How do you help a new believer know or experience assurance of Christ's presence in their life? In scripture, there seems to be descriptions of salvation that have eternal implications, while other times it refers to deliverance from a specific situation. Is there a way to differentiate? Can those who have never heard the name Jesus still be saved? Is salvation more about a posture of the heart rather than holding certain ideas or doing certain things? Is effort required on my part for salvation or is it a matter of surrender? If salvation is through faith slash a relationship with Jesus, what about all the people before Jesus' time on earth? Are there levels of salvation? Are there steps that need to be taken to better understand the fullness of salvation? What is the proper understanding of belief? 
What does Paul mean about the right gospel in 1 Corinthians 15.2? What about the fact that we are not on a level playing field when it comes to our understanding of salvation, especially with regard to our personal and environmental differences? Did something literally happen physically or metaphysically when Christ died or was it symbolic? How does salvation pertain to knowing Jesus relationally? What is salvation? I think of it as going to heaven versus hell. Faith or works in what proportion? What's the simplest way to explain this? Is there a legitimate scriptural precedent for the doctrine of mortal sin? What levels or distinctions exist between the types of being saved, inheriting life, and all the other types of descriptions that are given? In just a few cards, there's a lot of questions that we have about this. I have to answer most of these by the end of the series like we usually do, but we're going to wade into it a little bit more slowly to actually build a good foundation for salvation. So tonight I want to just do something pretty simple. I want to just look at the way that salvation is spoken of in three tenses. That's pretty much what we're going to do. And then we're going to look at what we call an ordering of salvation. Do two simple things just to get us started in this series. Now that I think we have a good case of why we would take time to do this. All right. So three tenses of salvation. The first thing that people recognize is it seems in scripture that even within one author's writing, we're going to look at the, the writings of Paul, he talks about it salvation in three different tenses. So let's just look at a little bit of scripture tonight. Here's the past tense, for example. From Romans 5.10, he says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, past tense, to him through the death of the Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved? Do you notice that in that one, there's already two tenses just in that one. There's one that actually looks forward as well as backwards. Romans 8.24, for in this hope we were saved. Ephesians 2.5, it is by grace you have been saved. This is important because we can say, all right, so salvation appears to be something that's taken place in the past in the lives of most of the believers that he's writing to. But we also see it in the present. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved present tense, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Seems like something is happening. The action is happening in the present. And of course, let's look at just a few that look at it in a future tense. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Future. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Philippians 1.28. Okay. So how do you reconcile three tenses together? What do we do here? If somebody is asking you, hey, I just accidentally picked up the scriptures and started reading them, and I'm a little bit confused by the tenses. You want to take a stab at this? Ben? I feel like this goes kind of back to the discussion we had before about the kingdom of heaven, where the kingdom of heaven is now, but it's also to come. And I feel like the same thing could be said about this, where like the past tense is God already planned this. The present tense is like through the death of his son, like it's kind of now. But then there's also the, like, well, we still haven't gone through judgment, we haven't gone through the like, resurrection of our own bodies. 
So that's still to come. Okay. Peter. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it feels like it's talking about, like, the event by which you were saved, or what have you. Or, like, I don't know, maybe, like, the contract you signed, <laughs> you know, to, to metaphorize it. And then, like, the, I guess, sanctifying process is what those, you know, are who are being saved thing felt like, you know, like, the kind of slow perfecting and, um, that, yeah, that we never really get to. But, and then this kind of sounds um, maybe like the eventual, the future tense stuff, like, you know, like the end, you know, or, or at... I know, the image I have in my mind is like at the end of the the final Narnia book where they all go to heaven, you know? That's like always what I have in mind is salvation. I guess it's just you know, lack of imagination on my end. It's amazing how much we get theology out of those Narnia books, man. It's like, hey, I don't know, just it's making an observation, you know? Nobody objected that strongly when I said, let's not read scripture, but Narnia, oh, don't touch that. Oh. Yes, Monique. This might be too, like, I don't know, lofty or whatever, but I just feel like God is kind of outside of time, right? Like, he's not confined by time, and I feel like since salvation was never a plan B, it was always the plan, and what salvation looks before he was born might be different than obviously after um, choosing to follow Christ, but those people were expecting a Messiah and were supposed to be waiting for a Messiah, so I feel like Christ was still involved and still around and very present and... So I just feel like God's not in time. So I kind of feel like his crucifixion kind of covers everybody, you know? Okay. One of the things that's happening here is we are looking at tenses about people's salvation. I don't mean just that there are some people who have been saved and others who will be saved. In a lot of ways, when you look at these verses in context, they're really talking about the same groups of people, meaning that somebody, you have been saved, are being saved, and you will be saved, all three at the same time. And it does come close to our understanding of how salvation works. So I'm going to throw up three terms on the screen to get us started. You've heard them before, but I want you to think about them now in this context. The first one is justification, the second one's sanctification, and the third one's glorification. Let me define them briefly. In the coming weeks, we're actually going to talk about them more and actually show verses where they come from so you know that people aren't just saying oh those are nice labels what was the question about are these just man or church made rules about salvation no we want to get them straight from the scripture like where in scripture does it give us these differing tenses of salvation that actually yield different results justification which we'll look at is that past or instantaneous thing that happens in the life of the believer where you are suddenly declared righteous before God. So you might say, in that sense, if you're a believer, you have been saved in the past. You were justified. You were made right with God. And that is a past act, and it doesn't continually happen. It's happened once. Contrast that with sanctification, which is in the present, the whole time that you're alive. While you have this relationship, that's where you are becoming more like Christ, becoming more holy. Yes, never accomplishing that state completely. But if the Spirit is doing His work in you and you are partnering with the Spirit, that is bringing you closer. And that is why so much in Scripture we see that we are being saved. It's a different aspect of our salvation. It's in the present. It's ongoing. It may not always be smooth. It may not always be at the same pace, but it's supposed to be an ongoing thing 
It is God's work from the inside out, but we have a role to play in that. We're going to talk about that as well. Look at glorification. That's the future tense of salvation in the life of the believer. That's when we finally get to the place where we become like Christ. The verse says that we will be like him because we will see him as he is when we have a resurrected body, when we become like him, and when we enter into eternity in relationship with God. That's the future tense of salvation. Now those verses that we looked at, they just show the tenses. There are many others, by the way, that show a past, a present, and a future, and we'll connect some of them to each of these concepts. But the reason that it's important to break it down this way is because sometimes people have come up to me with a simple verse like, what does it mean, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? I mean, that just isn't what the guy was saying when I accepted Christ. He never mentioned the words fear and trembling in that message where I came up and received Christ. I would have thought twice about it had I heard those words, for example. And it's the, 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 the problem is not a problem if you understand, well, which tense are you talking about? Because working out your salvation with fear and trembling is Paul's admonition about sanctification. About how it is that we're supposed to become more and more like Christ. So we'll be looking at that verse and understanding more about sanctification and our role, if we have one in sanctification, how it plays out. But the first thing to do is say, yes, you could have difficulty with that verse if you thought this was about justification. If you thought that like, well, they made it sound like it was something that I could accept and believe and put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be enough for me to have right standing with the Lord. And now it talks about fear and trembling. It's like, no, actually, that's talking about a different aspect of salvation. We need to just be clear about that. That's why I think understanding things like, yes, looking under the hood of the car helps us tremendously because it removes some of the things that cause us to stumble. Now, I'm about to do something where I put on the rest of this order of salvation. I'm going to say two things about it. One is we're going to go through some of these, maybe not all of them. And second of all, I'm not prescribing this order of salvation because the one I'm about to put up on the screen comes from a very strong Calvinist perspective, which I'll be explaining. So some of you may not like it. I just want to show you that there is a lot of thought that goes into all the aspects of salvation, how people order them together. The reason I start with a very strong Calvinist position is they've had an extra two or 300 years to put theirs together. Some of the other views that we have now in the church have come along later. But let me fill these in for you, just so you can get an idea of all the steps of salvation. This is how a strong Calvinist would explain the steps of salvation. Let me explain them to you. It begins with election before time, before creation. God chooses those who he's going to save and those who he's not going to save. Don't bristle yet. This is just a formulation. The next step is calling, where the proclamation of the gospel message is made. God's strongly involved in who hears that message, but human interaction required to deliver it. Upon hearing it, a person goes to the next stage. If they're elect and chosen, they will be regenerated. Meaning that they become spiritually alive. You were dead before and now you become alive. You are born again. You can become alive. The next step, conversion, 
where you actually put your faith in Christ and repent of sin. These are all happening instantaneously, by the way, in most, most formulations, regeneration, conversion, and then justification, which we just talked about, all happening at right around the same time. But the actors might be different. For example, in a strong Calvinist perspective, regeneration is an act of God. He makes you spiritually alive. He has chosen you. He has elected you from the beginning of time. And now you'll be regenerated. And he knows that you will respond with faith. Some would say an irresistible response. Then upon justification, you're adopted. This one we can kind of all agree on. We become a son or daughter, an heir of God. Because now we have the Holy Spirit who's given to us as a deposit, as a guarantee of our future inheritance. We're adopted into the family of God once we are justified. But in this formulation, only after we've been justified, even if they happen very close together. Because first we have to be in right standing with the Lord before we can be adopted into his family. And that begins the process of sanctification at that point. A lifelong process. But, a strong Calvinist would say, you must persevere to the end of your life by remaining a Christian all the way through. Yes? Calvinists hold that there's, I'm remembering this from like the fifth grade in a textbook, so, you know, grain of salt. But I feel like there was some um, level where it's like, all right, cool, I'm elect, I'm in. Like where you kind of recognize that or that's recognized in you. And, and this was kind of in the context of how some of the early Calvinist like colonies um, were like it was amazing that they were all elect. That was kind of one of my one of my teachers pointed out. But like, I mean, is that where does that fall in here? What you're referring to is actually like many of the Puritan colonies, their poetry, their literature that we still have to this day uh, is drenched with a self-examination and trying to test yourself to find out, um, you know, am I elect? Am I saved? And the question tortured them and produced a lot of beautiful poetry uh, because if you follow the theology all the way through, really, you cannot know because you have to persevere to the end of your life. Now, some of them thought, well, there's enough evidence that I am, so I feel like I'm okay. Uh, it also led to a lot of outward behavior, right, to prove to people because the way that they test themselves uh, is by looking at a lot of the fruit of your life and how it relates to other people. So, you know, some of the things that cause us to think, you know, we might label as hypocrisy, for example, grew out of a desire to appear elect and appear that you're okay so people didn't worry about you uh, and those kinds of things. That leads to death, which is not really an act of salvation, but it, in a way it is. It refines us and it causes us to go through the same experience that Jesus had and leads to glorification. I mean, at death, we go to be with the Lord. So in a way, that could be the greatest act ever because you live in this life for a very short time. You might be with the Lord in an interim state for a long time before the final judgment. And then you are glorified. That's a formulation of salvation. Yes. So from the other perspective, like what if you just stopped at that first step where like you believed and didn't go through sanctification? Or what if you believe that... Um, you, like, you really, really were a Christian, but then you walk away from God later in life to somehow that earlier decision carry on and continue to save you? So like for the people that don't think you can lose it? I'm not going to answer it now, and I'll tell you why. One of the reasons that this debate gets so heated sometimes, or we have a lack of ability to understand, is because we don't know where everybody's coming from in the steps. So what I'm going to do is in the next couple weeks, some of them won't take long because we can understand justification, adoption, conversion, regeneration. So we're going to look at those like next week and just show 
the biblical basis for them. Then Morgan's going to talk about sanctification and our role in that, and of course God's major action in sanctification. Uh, and then we're going to slightly discuss glorification, but the real focus is your two big questions. Can I lose my salvation? How do I know if I'm saved? And to get to that, you have to go all the way to the top of the chart and deal with election and calling. Because you have to pick one of those to solve your issue. And I'm going to allow you, to, you guys to do that. You, I'm, going to, I'm not going to prescribe. I'm going to tell you what I think of them. And then I want you to be able to say, you know what? This is how I believe God works. There are almost arguments at every level of it. And the reason is because of the verses we're going to read. Okay. Right? It's not like people just don't like it. You can look at all the verses, so we're not making it complicated because it's like, hey, let's rob that four-year-old of his salvation. It's, it's not what it is. It's more like it is very fair that if you decide to wander off on your own and read the scriptures by yourself, you're going to run across these verses that seem to come out in different ways. Nobody in this discussion is baseless. For, I mean, you know, some guy cites 20 verses in a row, and I'm reading them. And the next guy citing like eight verses going the other way. And you just stop and you think, okay, we have to ask questions about who God is. This is not just about a formula for salvation. We're asking, who is our God? And if he was about salvation before he even created us, this is central to who he is and understanding the beauty. I guess the best way I'm going to say this is, when I was struggling with why are we making this so complicated, I felt like we were taking something and putting it under a microscope. But the only thing I could say back to you is after all the reading I'm doing, when I look at this microscope, it is absolutely beautiful what God has done. This is not one of those things where you ruin it by looking closer. In fact, the more you look closer at the verses and what they could mean and how you understand it, uh, my awe for God this last couple weeks in reading has just gone up. Because I know I felt like I'm going to come in here and destroy some beautiful thing for you by breaking it down to these things. But I got to tell you, if you come look in the microscope I'm looking at and read the things I'm reading, uh, your, your awe for God just can't be contained when you realize what he's done. Some of these are going to be easy for us to understand and nobody really has a problem with them. Some of them we have to resolve to answer the ultimate questions that you guys really seem to care about. Am I saved? Yeah, just Forget about everybody else. Let's talk about me. Like, how do I know I'm saved? And can I lose that? You know, I just need to be sure about me. Soren. I guess just to push back a little bit is, I think a, a big thing that we're talking about is, like, am I saved in my own salvation? But, I don't know, at least for me, I feel like there's more to it than just that. My, my primary concern is, like, how do other people come to faith? How do other people fall away from faith? And then, based on those answers, I feel like my responsibility to other people or my responsibility to interactions with other people changes based on how that works. Sure. And I think you're going to see that, by the way, because a critique, for example, of a strong Calvinist perspective is if God has called those people and he's going to regenerate those people and they're going to accept his call no matter what, it does kind of take away the impetus for us to be so concerned about getting the word out there. I know they still make cases for why evangelism is important, but in some way, you think, but if God's going to save who God's going to save, no matter what he does, it does kind of change the way I interact with others. It is interesting, though, that in that, a lot of great evangelists have been Calvinists. And even people I've known in my own life that were much more outspoken about their faith were Calvinists. Now it seems 
want to be. Yeah, it is a little bit, but I mean, I've read defenses of why evangelism is so important to a Calvinist, uh, and they, they, they're, they're heartfelt. They feel, but it does impact a lot of the things that we do and think. Uh, it also impacts your belief about if people can lose their salvation or not. This is a big part of why we do what we do, because we're always concerned about how people who are young adults, as they face their faith in a real world, how that's going to impact their faith. I mean, if we just came to the conclusion that, you know, hey, if it impacted your faith and you left, you were never saved to begin with, that would be very strange. And I don't know that we would do Sunday nights anymore. That would be very weird. Yeah, I'm working, you know, I mean, I work at a Christian college, so a lot of my work would, I don't know, matter less if, depending on answers to some of questions. Let me just remind you that we looked last week, I don't even have to read to you all of them, Ephesians 1, 4, and 6, and 11, and 12, this is the kinds of things that I'm talking about. I mean, it says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love he predestined us. We were chosen, having been predestined. That's why these words come up when you're just reading something like Ephesians, turn to the first chapter like we did, and people start to struggle, like, wait a minute, what does that mean exactly? And people start to debate that, but it's not because they just want to make work for theologians. I mean, this is important. Or you can look down here. I don't, the, the idea of an order of salvation. Paul wrote one in Romans. I mean, he kind of starts to, there's the calling. Then he says, for those that he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. You could see that the order is not something that somebody just made up. I mean, they're actually trying to take Paul's words and saying, here's Romans 8. And he has this kind of ordering for how God worked out salvation. Now let's fill in anything else that we know from other scriptures, like adoption by the Holy Spirit and being born again. And where do those fit into this kind of timeline, if God has a timeline? Let me give you an example of how somebody would push back on this really briefly. One theologian that I actually trust a lot and I think has a lot of interesting thoughts says, how can God ever have an order? How can God have a sequence? He's outside of time. There is no sequence to God. Now that's complicated, but what he's trying to say is some things might lead to other things because God intends that to happen, but to say like God can't go from step one until step two is done implies that God is in time somehow. Okay, it's an interesting pushback. I can see where he's going because if he pushes back that way, he can say things like, well, when you say he elected and chose people before the beginning of time, uh, that might make sense to us reading scripture. That doesn't confine God in any way. He's not before time. He's everywhere at every moment. Yeah. Well, I think it's strange to think that God, even though he's outside of time, can't act within time because clearly he created it and we are bound by it. So in that sense, I think it shouldn't, I don't think there should be a logical problem with God in our concept of time having certain orders. Although God is outside of that. So in us, we may experience an order, whereas God clearly doesn't because he's outside of time. But th that shouldn't be a contradiction. You know? I mean, it's, it's mind-bending, and I don't have a very answer to it. But we just shouldn't throw out the idea that God parted the Red Sea before Jesus Christ came, right? I mean, yeah, that's where we're mind-bending again. Because, yes, God can act within time. But the question is, for example, with foreknowledge. Is there really foreknowledge to God? I mean, that's what people debate. Like it says here that he foreknew, he predestined, you know, like God foreknew, he also predestined, right? Okay, that sounds good in time from our perspective. So we're envisioning a time before creation, and there's us, and there's after us, right? Uh, to God, 
people quibble, is there such a thing as foreknowledge to God? Maybe those are words that apply to us while we're in time. But if God is at all points, what, what does he foreknow? He just knows. At every instant at the same time. That's what somebody would say. I'm not taking that position. I'm saying that's a response to foreknowledge. Yes? It sounds like we're all operating under the assumption that God is for sure out of time and not within time. Uh, I don't remember reading any scripture that says God created time. Um, and it's very possible that, that since time is just a way that we understand past, present, and future, um, and that we have been brought into his time, that there only is one time, and that he can foreknow because he's not there yet, um, because he's moving in time with us, and, and we've been brought into that. So it, it sounds like we've already assumed and made that assumption a priori, that, that God is outside of time, um, but maybe, maybe he's not, and that'll change, change things up. I'll accept that only, but I would say that the great majority of theologians accept that, I can show you why. There are some verses that they at least derive that from. But more importantly, because science has shown us that the best way to understand God is an extra-dimensional person who's not within our dimensions, the fourth being time. So a lot of people who are apologists and science people who are very deeply rooted in Christian belief say that's the best way to understand God is someone who is way outside of our... I mean, even scientists who don't believe in God believe time had a beginning. That's one of the elements of understanding how the universe is created. So there's no debate that time began. It's a dimension. And I, that's not a Christian belief. That's just a scientific belief. And so Christians adopt that and say, right, and God began it. We can see some clues in these verses. But I will say in fairness, there are theological positions that believe that God is in time and cannot foreknow things and is experiencing it all and kind of figuring it out with us, seeing it unfold with us as it happens. I'm not going to use that in this discussion because all the major components, whether you're on the Arminian, Wesleyan, strong Calvinist, modern Calvinist, Molinist, they all accept that God pretty much has created time and he's not a part of it in their formulations against these verses. So I'm not saying that those other views don't exist. I'm just saying that it would <laughs> way outside to deal with them as well because they have a whole different way of looking at it than the ones that we're looking at here. Yes. Um, I just wanted to throw it out there, and hopefully we'll be talking about it. I don't know. But um, what right now bothers me about um, the Ephesians passage that we're looking at is when it says, "For he um, showed." It's the whole election thing, um, and I'm just thinking about what about the people that are not elected, and um, it just doesn't seem fair. So, <laughs> um, so I don't know what to do with that. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I, I will say that the most honest people who are take a strong Calvinist position don't try to fudge it. I mean, I've seen some fudging. <laughs> they get weird. But the most honest ones say, yes, God chose some, and there's no way to get around the fact that that means he did not choose others. Right? Some people go, well, he didn't positively not choose them. Like, you know what? If there's only two choices, right, chosen or not chosen, and you choose some, I just think there's no way to logically escape. That means he did not choose others. The only thing I'd say is I read a lot of definitions of how that's fair. <laughs> and again, there's a, I mean, here's my new rule. The longer you write, the less you believe in what you're saying, right? <laughs> and some of these positions, like... <laughs> When they talk about justification, it's like, 
five paragraphs, bunch of verses, we're done. When we talk about why it's fair for God not to have chosen some, and it goes on like 19, 20 pages of paragraphs, you're going, you know, I, this is tough. But I will add this. I think we have to understand that our concept of fairness is very strange. I think we believe in a fairness. We've covered this in suffering. We've covered this in a lot of different series that our definition of fairness is like, I can't believe in a God who, and we like fill in the blank. So we might not understand how that's fair. That may be something beyond our comprehension. And I don't even doubt the idea that all of us feel that it's not unfair. But to go the next step and say, if that was really who God is, that's who God is. And I think that's where the real tension is. Yeah. Um, can I just extend that a little bit? Like, I'm even comparing um, this with like suffering and how people, yeah, they experience different levels or amounts of suffering. But at least with suffering, that's like an earthly thing that you experience. And you at least have heaven to look forward to versus the whole electing and predestination. I mean, this has eternal ramifications. So um, it just, I don't know. It would seem like, okay, he's going to, you know, harden Pharaoh's heart, you know, to save all of these people. Okay, can you give Herod some, another opportunity sometime? Yeah, I don't have any other response other than I will tell you some places to read people who try to come back and explain. But I love the honesty of people who just say, he did harden Pharaoh's heart. And he did say that, like, Judas would do this, right? Or he did choose this person and not that. Or these passages talk about choosing, and not just once, but it's repeated, right? That that concept has to be understood that way. And that's why other people say, I can't accept that. I'm formulating a whole new theological belief on this because that's not who God is. So we've misunderstood that, right? That's what they would say. They come from a different perspective. That's why I think we have to do this. We have to go into it. Uh, because when you run across it, it becomes an issue. Yes? How would a Calvinist um, deal with the verse in Timothy, Timothy 2.4 that says God wants everyone to come Yeah, that would say that that's the stated intent of what he wants. And I, I should look up the real answer that they would give, but that, that verse has been dealt with repeatedly. Like, it's his intention to do that, to offer that, but he knows that it's not going to happen because he's chosen otherwise. But I should give you the right answer. By the way... If you're a strong Calvinist and believe in God choosing from the beginning who he's going to save, then you don't have to worry about losing your salvation. You can't lose it because God has chosen you from the beginning and you're not going to lose it no matter what. So you could rest assured you're not going to lose it. You just won't know if that's you or not. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, if you're in the more, like if you like are an Arminianist or Wesleyan, and you believe that all of this choosing and foreknowledge is not the way we understand it, we'll explain their views too. And that's not the way to get it. And God is not from before creation saying, yes, no, yes, no, not doing that. Then the news about your question is, you can lose your salvation. Uh, And uh, you just better not go too far (laughs) because uh, you might lose it. Uh, So that's the other side. So I don't know that either one of them are going to leave you jumping up and down in your seats uh, maybe we could invent one that just mishmashes it all together. Oh, that's postmodernism. Never mind. Yes. Are you saying that in the Calvinist view, like if you're chosen, then all the other steps that followed, like are like inserts? Yes. It's just you don't know if you're one of them or not. 
And some Calvinists, just to play with your head even more, they have a concept of false grace or whatever, where you think you're a Christian the whole way, and then at the end you go, I'm not, you know? <laughs> Look, it's complicated. I don't mean to take apart the question that said, why is it so complicated? Uh, like I said, uh, we could just go back to simple formulations, and the church has done that for the last 50 years. Since the Jesus movement began, one of the ways that it really worked was we just made it very simple. We sold it like a product. All you had to do was something very simple, like come forward, say these words, do this, take a Bible, join this class, whatever it is. And I, I struggle because I think that at its base, it can be that simple. If you never looked any further and never ran into any more verses that caused you to wonder. And so I guess for the next four or five weeks, we're going to wonder. We're going to see what these verses actually say and see if you can come to a better understanding of it. I'm not going to guarantee you that 500 years of discussion about this is going to be resolved on a Sunday night here in LAPC. That's not going to happen. Uh, but I think some of them, you'll be surprised at how much more you'll understand things like regeneration and adoption when you see them in an orderly way and you go, wow, God did that for me. Uh, I understand my salvation just a little bit more, at least on that part. And I think that'll be the benefit we get out of it. Let's pray and close up. Lord, I ask that you would superintend our discussion. I know salvation is at the heart of who you are. That God, you are a lover of mankind and you are a rescuer of mankind. Lord, I ask that you would help us to let go of some of our own notions and to hear from your spirit, but that you would also correct us in places, Lord. And you would expand our mind. And most importantly, Lord, as we peer into this, may we have a greater view of you. May we come away awe-inspired. May we see the majesty and the beauty that is behind your plan that has been from before time. That you would love us to the point that you would create just so that we had the chance to know you and be with you forever. Pray this in your name. Amen.